Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hello and welcome to the Autosport Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Kalanorkas. Today, Formula One went racing at Mugello for the first time and the action was wild, to say the least. Mercedes took its third one tier of the season with Lewis Hamilton ahead of Valtteri Bottas, but that doesn't even come close to telling the story of a race that was in fact red flagged twice and featured three standing grid starts. At first, pulse to Hamilton was slow away. Bottas powered into the lead while Max Verstappen launched nearly past Hamilton before his Red Bull suddenly lost power and he dropped back. And in fact, he dropped back so far he got entangled in a shunt triggered by Pierre Gasly, Kimi Räikkönen and Romain Grosjean getting together at Turn 2, which put Verstappen out and led to an immediate safety car, with Carlos Sainz Jr. spinning in the pack of the head of the crash after contact with Lance Stroll. At the restart, Bottas didn't accelerate until he reached the start-finish line, and as he did so, the pack behind erupted in chaos, with Nicholas Latifi, Kevin Magnussen, Giovinazzi and Sainz eliminated in a frightening accident opposite the pits. That brought out red flag one and led to a long delay. At the second start, with the two Mercedes put onto mediums, Hamilton's brakes were fully on fire, but this didn't stop him shooting off the line and stealing first back around the outside of Turn 1, San Donato. There followed 34 laps of normal racing with Bottas generally adrift of Hamilton before losing a heap of time before his only green flag stop on lap 31 of 59 as he suffered severe vibrations on his medium tyres. Mercedes called Hamilton in too shortly afterwards saying it had had to stop Bottas for safety reasons and he looked in command up front until the race was halted again. Racing points Lance Stroll had taken third after the second start from Charles Leclerc, who had held on for nine laps before going backwards from P3 in a series of simple passes as he struggled for power and grip in his Ferrari. Stroll came under pressure from Renault's Daniel Ricciardo, who then undercut the racing point with an early stop, but his race came to an abrupt end shortly afterwards and a shocking one too when he crashed heavily at Arabiata 2 following a suspected puncture. And after another lengthy stint of the drivers being out of their cars and roaming around the pit lane, there was a third standing start. 
This time Hamilton had no dramas and he roared clear at the start of a 13-lap dash to the flag. But Bottas was slow away and Ricardo jumped ahead off the line, although the Mercedes was quickly back to second on the following tour. The second red flag had eased mounting tensions at Mercedes about tyres and Hamilton and Bottas exchanged fastest laps over the remaining tours where Bottas never looked like mounting an attack and Hamilton came home to take his 90th F1 win with the fastest lap to boot. Third place went to a delighted Albon who lost positions at the final start but battled back to deprive Ricardo of his first Renault podium which in turn gave Albon his first F1 rostrum visit. He claimed the position with another bold around the outside pass but this time it came off. Sergio Perez was fifth ahead of Lando Norris, Daniel Kvyat and Leclerc, who finished behind Raikkonen on the road but was elevated by the Alphas penalty for crossing the entry to the pit lane too late when the safety car was called for Stroll's crash. Sebastian Vettel held off George Russell, who took the final start in ninth and had looked to have Vettel rather in his pocket before dropping back when the lights went out and Vettel ended up 10th ahead of the Williams. We're back from the track and at our Airbnb near Borgo San Lorenzo to discuss all of that on Zoom, our Autosports F1 reporter and GP Racing Executive Editor, Stuart Codling. Now, Luke, I'm going to come to you first. Are you pleased that I asked you to write your first <laughs> autosport.com race report for that particular race? Delighted. Um, yeah, you messaged me this morning and said, oh, let's change up the workflow a little bit. Maybe you give the race report a go. And I thought, sure, Like, what's the worst can ha- that can happen? I mean, I've not written an F1 race report since November, I want to say. Uh, so I thought I might be a little bit rusty. Like, hopefully it's a very smooth, very easy race. And then that happened. And I think it was when we had the first red flag uh, that you messaged me going, I'm really sorry about this, like of all the races to pick. And yeah, it was it was a crazy race, dramatic, um, a very, very interesting one that you kind of like, you don't want to pre-write too early. And I think I was just starting to think, right, I think we got the result pretty much set. And then we had Lance Stroll's crash and another red flag and everything was turned on its head over again. Uh, but yeah, got there in the end, filed it fairly quickly. So I was quite happy with it for a, a first uh, attempt back. And uh, yeah, really interesting to try and, uh, I guess, sort of uh, encapsulate what a, a dramatic race and a really exciting one uh, once again, uh, just with so much going on and so much to pack in uh, to, to a race report. So uh, yeah, I, I, I guess uh, thank you for that, Alex. It was a good opportunity. Um if a little stressful at times. Excellent. Well, I'm glad you uh, saw it as a good uh, learning opportunity. I thought I actually thought I was going to give you quite a dull race because I didn't expect there to be any overtaking. And I think when we when we look into the race, there wasn't really there wasn't all that much. There were just some cars out of position that got overtaken going in the wrong direction. I think that was the majority of overtaking in in that race. So uh, yeah, interesting to see how it played out. But yeah, I was also curious to see is how I would be following things when I didn't have a a website report to uh, to compose. And actually, I did exactly the same thing as I've done for all the other races this year, which is take notes for basically every lap. So <laughs> it was it was very familiar familiar uh, race for me there in terms of the way I did that. Uh, Stuart Codling, how was everything in the Lord Heseltine Theatre? Well, it was quite dramatic, wasn't it? I seemed to spend an awful lot of time um, committing acts of piracy by rewinding and recording stuff and sending you video snippets so we could try and decode various things that went on in in the race. It it was one of those races where... I suppose in in terms of race reportage, it's it's very hard to write a report about a race like that and string together a narrative because it was basically a series of things that happened um, and, and, and there wasn't really a backing narrative because it kept stopping. So you had a race that seemed to be carrying on and then it had to stop and then it restarted again and then boom, that was bunk. And then we ended up with this 13 lap sprint to the end where actually, you know, tactically that there, there was no strategy to it, that, that, that there was, there was very little strategically to chew over in this Grand Prix because by, by the final restart, everyone was on the you know, sets of tires that they'd probably used about eight times before. 
Well, fortunately, there is. I have found a narrative to go for my Autosport magazine and Autosport.com plus race report, which we shall get to later and involves Valtteri Bottas and how he couldn't look after his medium tyres. But before we do that, John, coming to you, we had a rather lovely view of all the action, particularly the various starts, because there were so many in this race, uh, because the Mugello uh, Media Centre was basically right on top of the pit lane. We were effectively sat on top of the Alfa Romeo pit stops, which was, uh, we discussed this at dinner last night. We were like, oh, we're going to see some some pit stops in action. I'm sure it'll go very smoothly, usually very quickly. Then we remembered it was Alfa Romeo and there was bound to be some chaos, and there was when Kimi Raikkonen was left up on his jacks at one point, which is rather amusing. We had a very good view of uh, all our action, of all the action. Press room here is quite unique, um, really. You are often above the pits, but normally it's second floor or third floor. Um, you're looking quite far down. Um, and you can't see the detail, whereas because Mugello is not a kind of new world F1 track, multi-billion dollar government um, show-off project, uh, it's just an old school, fantastic racetrack. As I said, there were three starts, three quid starts. Let's talk about the first one, Coros, because as you said, you were very helpfully uh, pirate, being a pirate. And I think, yeah, I think you're doing anything particularly outrageous because we weren't publishing it. We were just uh, having a nice you know, nice genial conversations, perhaps reviewing the various commentary and uh, and uh, and bits and pieces that were coming in from the, the channel that we, you were watching it on back home. Uh, but yes, the start, it was very interesting being able to, to see it have such a good view at Mugello. Because Luke was on the dot-com race report, I was able to stand up and look out the window, basically, to see what was going on at the start. And I was absolutely convinced. I mean, the, the window was literally next to my desk. I could have sat down. It's just there was a great big metal bar which is where the where the, the window opened and shut them and you couldn't just have a nice little sit down and watch the start but anyway i digress um i was absolutely convinced codders that lewis hamilton when he made his really poor start at the very beginning um moved before the lights went out it just looked like he twitched there was a fraction of a reaction as uh, as valtteri bottas it happened to him in hungary obviously it happened again in spain and then monza was a similar thing although not quite not quite as dramatic and then we looked at it and we thought well maybe not maybe not and obviously nothing was said or done there were no investigation or anything but then i've had a chance to look at the onboards from hamilton's car at the start and he does there is the slightest of movement it's actually a nice helpful bit on his tires don't quite know what it is but it moves forwards and then as he goes around the lap he's told that uh there was perhaps a problem with the clutch or the clutch system on the Mercedes car and that he did everything right. But anyway, something interesting going on there. But nevertheless, it looked like that could have been a race losing mistake there. He said that he reacted badly. Um, wheel spin as well. Let Bottas get by and into the lead. Uh, but obviously all of that came to naught because there was the the immediate crash at turn two where Pierre Gasly went from, from hero to even further zero after his qualifying uh, misery, knocked out in Q1. So yeah, Codis, how did you see that initial uh, initial start and crash? Yeah, it, it didn't really pan out as, as we'd expected, had it? Because I, I recall me sending you a message saying, "I'll I'll just I'll just let I'll I'll rewind and and get back to you on the Hamilton thing after the restart." And then we spent an awful lot of time trying to decode the restart. But yeah, um, the, the the video you sent to me from out the window, he, he it looked like there was a bit of a movement, and then after the the chaos of the restart has subsided. Um, I, I got a an in car from the Stappen's start where we kind of thought we, we we generally ascertained that he'd moved, but not exactly forward. It was more of a sort of a transverse twitch, which, which was very peculiar because in in any car or motorbike that has a sequential gearbox, when you when you bang it into gear, there there is a forward motion and a clunk but you wouldn't be putting it into gear at that point. So it, it must have been some sort of thing going through the car, 
while he's lifting the clutch. And it, I, I imagine that they, they, you know, we, we've 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 looked in detail at these various team starting procedures in the past and how they have um, the the clutch actuation is is done to enable the driver to engage it sympathetically to avoid wheel spin. Uh, obviously, Bottas has has reported these mysterious problems that we've slightly poo pooed in the past, but may, maybe there is something in the way the Mercedes uh, clutch system is set up that has has let this sort of um it's it's almost like a poltergeist jump in hasn't it so that was interesting and then further around that first lap you have ghastly i i would say obviously the stewards decided not to throw the book at anyone but when you hear roman grosjean's reaction and obviously you know he is ridiculously theatrical at, at these points and you can usually guarantee an expletive like laden yeah exactly there, there's a certain element of theater and overreaction um, you have to say that any, anyone who's even Formula One drivers who might not have raced there before, if you've raced at Mugello in Forza, you know that that corner narrows down, and those those two cars that Pierre Gasly was spearing his car between were only ever going to converge. So, I, my take on it was it was a little bit of red mist on his part. He, he put his car in danger, and he. He initiated that shunt, um, and if if you try and drive between two cars, you're relying on the people that, on the guy on your left and the guy on your right not to squeeze you and to have seen you. And if one of them hasn't seen you, as Grosjean said, you know he came out of nowhere, then they're they're, they're going to squeeze you inadvertently, not, not deliberately, just because they're that they've got their eyes full of what's happening ahead of them. And they're not expecting someone to post themselves in between them. So, to, to my mind, Pierre slightly overcooked it there. I, I can you can understand why he would have done, but it it it, it was a little bit too early. I, I think he thought that this is a race that's going to pan down to the first lap, and this is a hard track on which to overtake. So I need to get this done now. And so that is his mitigation in my mind. And just to, just to throw a little bit more. Uh, mitigation in into the into the into the fray before we come on to talk about probably the biggest talking point of the race which was the safety car restart ahead of the first red flag and um, it's actually Raikkonen gets a little bit of oversteer as he's coming out of um, as he's coming towards uh, turn two because the pack is so congested at that point and it's that little slight right hand down motion that sends him ever so fractionally slightly back towards Gasly and then as you say God as the whole thing triggers off and ends up with Max Verstappen out of the race um, and then yes the safety car restart Luke, why don't you talk us uh, through what happened there? Oh, yeah. Where to begin? Well, so we had the, uh, obviously the field came around after the wreckage had been cleared at turn two and uh, the control line, which is where they are allowed to go back to green and start overtaking again. That was quite a long way up the straight. Obviously, it's a very, very long straight at Mugello. So therefore, it was quite close to the start finish line. And uh, that meant that basically Valtteri Bottas, as the race leader, could slow the pack as much as he wanted all the way to that line. So we had quite a strange situation where he was kind of like coming onto the main straight. And normally we kind of see drivers like pinning it out the final corner, really trying to bolt the restart and get a jump on the cars behind. And he was sort of like 
passing per, per entry, still sort of weaving and trying to get heat into his tyres and everything like that, uh, but all well within the rules. And then just as he accelerated and started to lead the field away, uh, we then had absolute carnage behind. So we had uh, four drivers caught up in the collision, uh, Antonio Giovinazzi, Carlos Sainz Jr., Nicholas Latifi and Kevin Magnussen, uh, all of whom were eliminated on the spot. And it was really just a situation where you had some drivers who were sort of slowing and braking because the car's in front not going quickly enough, and then others behind who were trying to sort of pin it and I guess get a slingshot on the cars ahead and and get that jump and it just led to a, a massive massive crash that uh, ultimately resulted in a red flag because of the debris thrown across the track and I think that was the only sensible action but I think has become a, a real talking point after the race as well because a lot of drivers have questioned why an accident like that was allowed to happen uh, they questioned the rules, uh, the decision makers. Lewis Hamilton said that ultimately it was down to the FIA to sort of set the rules and not make it so that the safety car lights are going out so late. And uh, he said that ultimately F1 is sort of pulling entertainment even before safety. And that was something that uh, FIA race director Michael Massey was, uh, he said he found quite offensive. He wasn't happy with that remark at all. Said that the FIA would never put safety in doubt. And uh, yeah, it was, I think, just a really big talking point. And I think men, none of the drivers were happy with what happened. Uh, Sebastian Vettel said he thought it was quite erratic on the restart. And to me, it just seemed that it was just way too late, like way too far up the straight for them to be going back to back to green. But we see the same thing in Baku. I mean, that's another track where you've got this massive, massive straight leading all the way to the start finish line. And that means that the control line where they can get back to green is so far up. Like, so they can just go ridiculously slowly and then have this massive straight, everyone's going really wide, and they've all got to get back, back up to speed. So it's really just a bit of a, a recipe for carnage, and that's exactly what unfolded. Indeed, it was interesting um, it, it was interesting to hear Roman Grosjean, God, as, as you referred to, the, another radio uh, radio delight from Grosjean, where he was absolutely convinced that it was the leaders and Valtteri Bottas who was to blame for what happened. Uh, the FIA completely clears Bottas, uh, said there's nothing wrong, follow the regulations at all times. And it was there was also a, another good snippet from Michael Massey where he said, well, the F3 drivers managed to do a safety, the same safety car restart with any, with any instant like this. So sort of said, you know, we've got 20 of the, the 20 of the world's best drivers out there and, uh, you know, they can't do what the F3 drivers are doing, which is what he seemed to be suggesting, which is rather amusing. Uh, but yeah, John, what did you make of the FIA's response? And, you know, how did this whole, this whole sort of situation come to pass, really? I think the fact that Massey spoke to the drivers on Friday was quite important because we don't really know what goes on in the driver's briefing. You get little, little snippets. So, you know, there was perhaps a little concern that, you know, maybe this is a scenario the FI should have thought of, that there's always going to be a risk of this happening because of the nature of the track like we've seen in Baku in the past. Um, but Massey said he, the drivers were warned exactly about the potential for this scenario. Um, they all knew where the control line was. They knew what the tactics were. They had seen, um, you know, the Formula 3 race this morning, so probably pretty much well aware of, how the rest, how the best way to the restarts were planning out. I think the back end of the grid just got it wrong. I think they were too eager. Probably, it was probably magnified by the fact we hadn't had a racing lap up to that point. They'd had one corner. So I think they were all probably quite eager to get going, eager to gain as many positions as possible because there was this fear that the race wouldn't have much overtaking. So this was the one big opportunity that they hadn't had before. Uh, and I think if you watch Nicholas Latifi's onboard footage, for example, um, this wasn't a problem that just happened on the start finish tray. He nearly hit um, Grosjean at the final corner. I mean, really, really close. I think it was Magnussen. Oh, Magnussen, sorry. He um, nearly hit um, Magnussen at the final corner, um, avoided that. Coming down the straight, the pair of them are quite close. And then, it, you know, all chaos 
breaks loose, basically. I think drivers just leaving gaps, accelerating, braking. Uh, the classic concertina accident you can see on motorways sometimes when you know a car six up, breaks suddenly, and it shuffles back, and suddenly the six car on the queue has no room to stop. So but what accidents like that do do is kind of make you appreciate kind of the, the speeds that these cars can accelerate and brake. Uh, it's only when things go wrong. Um, you know, speed with which signs rammed into the back of um, Giovinazzi and Giovinazzi um, ran to the back of the train of cars. Uh, you know, phenomenal. I mean, no one could have reacted to when they suddenly realised that these cars were slowing. It was incredible. Indeed, I mean, all of the all of the all of the drivers involved, and actually, not even just the ones sort of involved in the crash. There were several others. I think Sergio Perez, Daniel Kvyat, twelve in total, get uh, get official warnings basically for for that incident. And um, Codders, what did you make of it? Did you do you disagree? Do you think there's anybody who particularly should have copped a penalty for that? No, I I, I agree with to some extent. There's a little bit of a it, it wasn't our fault going on from the FIA there, but when you when you look at that accident in detail it's it's very hard to actually forensically unpick um any one person being at fault because there's an awful lot of people just doing things and reacting to one another uh, that it's it's very very hard to unpick so you know but I I did send you about umpteen different videos from onboards as we tried to unpick it during that red flag and, and it was tricky and you know my first thought was that maybe Latifi had uh, w- was uh, slightly to blame for it because he had gone to the left he 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 was accelerating quite hard and was was going to the left of Magnuson when Magnuson checked up and so my my first thought was that people had possibly been behind, had been triggered by Latifi going and they'd followed him and then being caught out by Magnuson slowing, obviously in reaction to the cars ahead. But these are all just sort of individual stitches in a tapestry of a bigger shunt. And an awful lot of people, as Johnny said, it's it's like one of these motorway things. Johnny and I live sort of in in the same part of the world. We see this all the time in Junction 4A of the M3 as someone <laughs> dives into the uh, the turnoff lane for Farnham and stamps on the brakes to slot themselves in traffic. The person behind spots that, slams on the brakes. The person behind them has that reaction time built in, so they're a bit slower. They brake harder. Six cars later, someone hit, runs into the back of one another because the the, the react, reaction time and the velocity is such that there's 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 much less space to to manoeuvre. So w- when you have Formula One cars who are that that much quicker to accelerate, that much quicker to slow down. I don't think you can you can decode an accident. So it's probably the the FIA have done the right thing in just giving everyone a warning because they were all speeding up and slowing down. And the very wording of the regulations um, is is something that's it's subject it's it's a subjective um, judgment you have to make on it because what is the wording of the regulations that excessive speeding up or slowing down or something like that who is who is the person who sits in judgment on that it's not the drivers themselves that says well i'm i'm excessively speeding up and slowing down uh, and i put it to esteban ocon in in his post-race press conference i said well what do, what do you think about that it must be very hard for you as a driver to judge whether you're speeding up and slowing down excessively when everyone else around you is pretty much doing the same thing and he said well you know as a driver you would much prefer to have a much firmer guideline of of what to do in this 
scenario. And he, like Johnny, cited Baku as a, a very similar scenario of a long straight with a uh, the the go line sort of quite a long way down it. And and drivers naturally are jockeying for position as they go towards it. So I think it's it's just it goes with the territory in a circuit like this. I can read you the wording of that rule because I was looking it up before we started this podcast and it says uh, drivers must proceed at a pace which involves no erratic acceleration or braking nor any other maneuver which is likely to endanger other drivers or impede the restart in terms of impeding the restart it was actually a very good restart for Valtteri Bottas I thought he absolutely dropped Lewis Hamilton when it came to the actual acceleration then obviously that was all all came to naught they all came into the pit lane and eventually we got a second grid start for the second uh, race in a row because that, that rule has been been in for quite a while the you know they'll the, the, we'll do a grid start before uh, uh, after a red flag situation but we've only saw it at Monza for the first time last weekend you know the second start Lewis Hamilton's brakes completely on fire he said he saw one one flame shoot up from his vantage point in the cockpit. Well, as we were watching and videoing me again, just as I could go back over the start later on, um, the second start, it was it, that flames were were properly licking out of the side of his of his right front, and the, the the steam and the smoke coming off them was was tremendous. So he said that the reason why that happened, because I asked him about this in the press conference, was that he had a brake temperature separation of about two hundred degrees between the front uh, front wheels on the on the effectively the second formation lap. Uh, so we tried to even that up. And in doing so, he sent the brake temperatures above a thousand degrees, or sent them to a thousand degrees. At which point, obviously, there'd likely to be a fire. He tried to cool it down in the final corner, but by the time he got to the grid, it was just there was just too much temperature. And I think he he was quite fortunate from his point of view. The start was quite quick. I think that's why he said, "I saw the flame. I was worried, but eventually the lights went out quite quickly and we got away." And he pulled off this fantastic move around the outside of Alfie Bottas at turn one. Um, Luke, what did you what did you make of Bottas at that restart? Because it was having having done having been brilliant up until that point, this is where it really started to go wrong for him. Yeah, it was. And I think it's really been the the story of Bottas' season. Like it's sort of all the building blocks are in place and things are looking promising. And even through this weekend, he was quickest in all three practice sessions, quickest in Q1. And then in Q2, the, the tables turned and Hamilton was was faster and then just about beating to pole. But then you see Bottas fight back, as you said, make that great start to get the lead and then drops him really well on, on the first restart. And then it all it all was all just undone. And I think that we saw a lot of drivers doing this move around the outside of turn one, because obviously that then gives you the inside line for turn two, which gets you the position ultimately. And uh, yeah, it was just another, we've seen it so many times this season with Valtteri Bottas making these the, these poor starts and, and struggling off the line. Uh, we saw it on the, the, the third grid start as well later on in the race um, when he lost position to Dan. Ricardo, as I'm sure we'll get on to. But yeah, this one again was just like he'd done all the hard work to get ahead of Lewis Hamilton to be in front on a track where we knew it was going to be difficult to overtake. And then it's just one poor start and it's all undone. And uh yeah, it just it just really I think must be so disappointing and frustrating for him to know that he'd done everything right up to that point. And obviously you're never planning for a red flag in your head, really. You know, because I mean, once you've done your your initial getaway, you kind of think, well, that's it. I don't need to worry about another start. And uh, yeah, then it came back to bite him and uh, a very, very difficult, I think, uh, difficult situation. And I think that just that was ultimately where the race was lost. And that's how that's how it was won for Lewis Hamilton. I mean, I, I, I think it was more the move at turn one than the start that cost Bottas here. Uh, what did you make of of, of Bottas's defence, Codders, when it came to that that turn one that turn one pass? It felt like he'd lost it before he even got there, didn't it? Uh, I, I 
I sort of struggled to decode the initial acceleration. It looked like he he got away perfectly fine, and 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 Lewis sort of tucked into his slipstream as if you might do in in Sochi, as, as we'll see in a couple of weeks' time, and and then just pulled off around the outside. And I I, I replayed the start. There there is um there's a little bit of a dip in the track there. And Valtteri's car sort of kicked up what was probably a bit of cement dust or something, or or he his plank ground out, and there's a, a whiff of dust. And it seemed to be around that point where he seemed to lose a little bit of impetus. It's around that point where there's a slight left hand kink in the straight before it straightens up again, and and he just seemed to lose a little bit of momentum there. And Lewis kind of sailed past him quite easily. It it was very very weird. It was interesting, John. We were talking um, because obviously we've been in Italy. Uh, for for quite a while now, as he being at the Italian Grand Prix um, beforehand, that you know it's not it's not actually a straight, is it? Here at Mugello, it rather it's rather a meandering path down to Turn One, as I think how you put it. This is one of the um, <clears throat> things you really find hard to appreciate until you're out walking the track or running the track. Um, I ran the track on Friday night, um, and he always had the belief that you know Mugello looked fairly um, flat start finish straight, and then it kind of drop down into turn one with a slight left. But actually, that climb up along the pit lane is quite steep. Um, it's as steep as some decent hills on other Formula 1 tracks. So you're climbing up and then it then it drops down. And the first corner has got quite a bit of camber in it. Um, and I think a, a lot of the drivers over the weekend realised that actually the best way to overtake wasn't to go down the inside. It was to go around the outside. So um, very few drivers actually tried to force their rivals to go on the go on the inside when they went down there. I just wonder if it may actually have been a better, perhaps better defensive move to try and squeeze someone down the inside and not leave them enough room. Let's come on to that narrative that I mentioned earlier in terms of the race being lost for Bottas. Obviously, he's behind Hamilton, but he has the opportunity to attack him back, but he just can't. Hamilton's able to marshal the gap. Bottas is never really in DRS range. In fact, I don't think he is at all at this point. Um, and he just run, he runs out of tires on the mediums. You know, he, he, he's saying you know that Mercedes effectively say they pit him for safety reasons because his right front was down to zero. There was just no tread, no rubber left. Whereas Hamilton was insistent that he still could have gone longer. But what was really interesting um, from a from a sort of a, a, a news or, or you know a juicy bit of something point of view uh, was Bottas's radio message where he demanded at his stop to be given the opposite tire. To Hamilton, so Cottis, what did what did you make of that? Was this was this again a bit a sign of Bottas trying to do something devious, or was it desperation, or was it just sensible logic that he saw it as the only way he could win this race? Uh, initially, the way I read it was that he wanted to be given an opportunity to race Lewis and logically given that you're against the best driver in the world, if you're on the same strategy as him, it's pretty tricky. So he just wanted to have an alternate strategy uh, to uh, try and do something different. So it, it's, it was a little bit of a move of desperation. I didn't see anything devious behind it. And then when, you know, the, the various parties of the first part said that his tires were shot um, you, you sort of saw it as, well, probably that's what had to happen. What what then mystified me was when Lewis was told he had to come in as well. And he said, oh, my tyres are fine. And they said to him, this this is a safety matter. And, you know, and the undercut's powerful around here. So, you know, in you come. And and then he took on the the, the same tyres, which, which, which was quite amusing. And 
and, and quite unusual. But it, I suppose, you know, if you're from Mercedes, you are in a tricky and invidious position in that you can't be seen to favour either driver. So um, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Well, it was interesting uh, in the in the stint after that, before before the stroll accident and the second red flag was that Mercedes told both its drivers, although only really broadcast the uh, the messages to Lewis Hamilton, telling him to, to telling them both to stay off the curbs for safety reasons because they were worried about the tires, particularly after they'd analysed um, the tires that had come off Bottas's car in that first stint. I was quite amused by Hamilton coming straight back and saying, "Well, what curbs?" And Mercedes come back and say, "Well, basically, basically all of them, but the high <laughs> the high load curbs really." Um, yeah, what what did you make of that, John? Was it a, another example of Mercedes struggling with a combination of a high energy track, high load corners, and hot temperatures, or was it debris? Because that's what sort of Toto Wolf talked about afterwards when it came to the the stroll accident. What do you think Mercedes were concerned about? I think they just just managing a race and minimising the, the risk of any trouble. Um, they've got such a good car um, that you know when you're in in the front, controlling the pace, um, comfortably ahead of everybody because no one, no other team was really quick enough to challenge them. Um, Max was out early. Um, the battle behind with Stroll, Ricardo, Albon was so far adrift, they weren't really under threat. So, you know, their only way of tripping up here and um, getting it wrong was defeating themselves. So, a Mercedes often, uh, you know, have to manage, this is fine balancing line of managing the battle between the two drivers, but making sure that that battle doesn't scupper the team. So, um, that's why t- today was quite interesting to see what would have happened um, with the strategy. It's rare to allow one of the drivers to opt for a different strategy. Uh, it doesn't happen very often. It's something Mercedes don't like doing because ultimately one strategy will prove better than the other and the driver that loses will be, be upset and think there's some favouritism going on. So it was would have been interesting how that panned out uh, and it would have been interesting to probe Toto Wolf a bit tonight, but uh, unfortunately, with red flag delays, um, team bosses shooting off early. He spoke for two or three minutes with a handful of questions on some unrelated topics. So, unfortunately, no real um, opportunity to find what their answer was. Um, you know, whether there are some new rules of engagement, have have things open up a bit now that Lewis has got such a big lead that there will be a, a bit more of a battle, or has Bottas decided that actually the difference between Lewis and me of less than one tenth in qualifying and this bit of edge in the race is something I can't I can't take him on. I can't beat him in an equal car on the same strategy. From now on I need to be doing something different. You understand what he's saying there, but it's it's not it's not a good place to be when he needs to be hitting back at Hamilton at every opportunity. He can't you know, you feel like, you know, it's a matter of time, fine, but it's still not it's just not good, is it, from Bottas? No, it's not. No. I mean it's a it's a a matter of time like but when like it should have been at Monza it should have been when Lewis Hamilton had a race destroying penalty and Bottas in the fastest car on the grid should have been there to pick up the pieces capitalize and win the race but he didn't here it should have been that when you seize the lead at the start of the race on a track where it's very difficult to follow very difficult to overtake that you should therefore seal the deal and, and see it home and again he didn't and it's just there's just so many times this season where Again, all the sort of the, as I said earlier, the building blocks and the foundations are in place. And he was really good this weekend, really strong. He was so much quicker in practice on Friday that Lewis Hamilton really had to go away and like forensically go through all his data and work out where he was losing so much time to his teammate. And to put Lewis Hamilton, who is arguably the greatest of all time, in that position, I mean, that's that's a massive credit to Bottas. Like he's really doing well to be. And I think there's a stat that in the last three of the last four qualifying sessions, he's been within a tenth of Lewis in that final Q3 fight. So he, again, he's really, really close. 
but not just just that little bit behind. So he can't actually get ahead and get pole. And I, I just don't know when things are going to turn around now because we've seen this points gap open up and open up and open up to the point where we're, what, 55 points now at the front. And I just don't see, I don't see where it's going to change. And for as much as he may say, oh, well, it's a matter of time, like things are going to come my way. But but when? Like surely until you do something differently, surely until you're being maybe a little bit more aggressive, maybe, yeah, could have been more aggressive that at that um, restart to hold the position or whatever, then things aren't going to change because I just don't see as well as he's performing right now. If it's not enough to beat Lewis Hamilton now, then when is it ever going to be? Indeed. Well, Codders, someone who's, who th- things did fall his way was Alexander Albon, although he made a fair few things happen. He he lost uh, places at that third start. So it seems to be implying that, you know, things things were just bad for Red Bull on the, on the start front all day. Um, but he finally, he finally came off. He gets ahead of Daniel Ricciardo, tries the the around the outside path uh, the around the outside pass that had gone so badly for him in Brazil and Austria against Lewis Hamilton but this time it paid off he was uh, he said something quite pointed on the radio said thanks for sticking with me sadly wasn't asked about it in the press conference there wasn't enough time for some reason um so yeah what did you what did you make of Albon's drive today uh, it was interesting it was a game of several halves wasn't it um terrible restart and how much of that was him, how much of it was the car, is difficult to unpick from where we're sitting. The The Red Bull is clearly a very difficult car to drive. And I, th- I think he's been a little bit unfairly treated in that people think that kind of he's doing something wrong or he's not up to the task. Uh, and Verstappen's doing a, a lot better job than him. And the the one truth of that is that Verstappen is doing a better job than him because he's a once-in-a-generation talent. But what Verstappen's doing is taking a car that's very difficult to drive and squeezing results out of it that it doesn't necessarily warrant. And and what did we see today? That the car letting Verstappen down right from the start. So he ceased to become a factor. Uh, All we can judge from the Red Bull performance today is that that car seems to come alive when it's on lighter tanks. And... Uh, given it, it seems just very inconsistent, doesn't it? There, there were times when um, Alex Albon's times were no great shakes, but then given a different set of tyres, all of a sudden the car comes alive. And especially when it's running on light tanks, it seems to be an, an awful lot easier to drive and imbues the driver with so much more confidence. And it was at that point that he was really coming at the cars ahead. And credit to him, made the overtake stick. And there were other drivers who in, in that position might not have done that. You know, I, I'm looking at you, Valtteri Bottas, for instance. Also Lance Stroll, who yes, made indeed. very heavy weather of certain overtaking manoeuvres earlier in the race. But, yeah, you know, get, get. I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you have the reins back, Alex, before we start ranting about Lance. No, no, no. We already, we were, you were already quite damning in your assessment of him and our WhatsApp messages during the race, Goddess. And, hmm. um, John, what did you make of a driver who was pretty faultless in this race, although he can't get a perfect score in my drive ratings because of his qualifying performance? That's Daniel Ricciardo. Had he nailed his, uh, had he done his Q2 time in Q3, he would have been fifth and ahead of Charles Leclerc. So not a faultless weekend for Daniel Ricciardo, but he was brilliant in the race. What did you make of his performance? And um, and how fortunate should Cyril Abitbol feel that he doesn't have to get a tattoo after Ricardo didn't get a pen, uh, podium? Yeah, you sense it's coming. It's not very far away now. I did 
did um, find it amusing that when Daniel was running, even in fourth place early on, the, the first Twitter um, gifts of tattoos were appearing everywhere. So I think that's going to be a be a running theme. And if if I was Cyril now, I wouldn't be convinced I'm not going to end this season without a tattoo. So yeah, another good weekend for um, Daniel and Renault. Um, they had a bit of a shocker in, in Monza. They'd gone there full of confidence that, that they were going to be brilliant there and that podium was coming. It didn't happen. The um, balance wasn't there on super low downforce. The McLaren was much more comfortable. Uh, and the, these are the performance swings we're seeing, basically, that it's between um, Racing Point, Renault, McLaren for that head of the midfield pack. Um, the Renault seems to have made a step but suffered at Monza um, and they've capitalised on what we saw at Spa. And Daniel was faultless in the race. I mean, just a great great performance uh, and ultimately just lost out to Albon who was in a, in a quicker car. I mean, the Red Bull is quicker than the Renault. There's no doubt about that. Um, he did well. He was running at second at one point. Uh, you know, and if he'd been, had a tyre benefit or um, a little bit of luck, you know, he could be well in the mix. But I think he'll be pretty happy with fourth place, more points for the constructors. Uh, and I think he'll still be trying to finalise exactly what tattoos Cyril's going to get. Indeed. Codders, uh, Ferrari's 1,000th F1 World Championship race celebration this weekend. Uh, it's still quite a tough race for them. Charles Leclerc running in third was, was, would have been delighted, the few fans that were allowed in under the COVID restrictions. But as you say, once Lance Stroll had stopped making heavy weather of getting past him, everybody else seemed to just breeze past him in an instant. Obviously, his tyres were, were going off by that point, which would have helped. Um, but yeah, that, 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 that wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't a good advert for Ferrari, that performance. And then Vettel in qualifying was poor. Uh, Vettel got dropped by George Russell for a large point in that portion of that race. Russell was just simply driving away from him. So it was okay from Ferrari compared to what we saw at Spa and Monza, but it was still, still wasn't great. Yeah, I, I, I don't suppose Enzo Ferrari, if he was still with us today, would be pleased at the idea of this race sort of not being an absolute catastrophe. Um, and, and yeah, like you say, the, the, those, even those opening laps when Charles was just behind the Mercedes, you know, you would think, okay, well, you know, a Ferrari in, in, in P3, that, that's, that's not such a terrible thing, is it? And then you look at the times and he's a second a lap slower and you think, well, this isn't going to last, is it? And it only lasted because, you know, Lance made particularly heavy weather of getting past him, but eventually he did. And then eventually, you know, the, the momentum happened and, and he, he, he went backwards. Uh, and I suppose you know it's 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 tricky times to be driving a Ferrari at the moment. And he, uh, I, I, th- there are those of us who dispute whether it's even Ferrari's thousandth Grand Prix. It's involved a little bit of fudging. It it, it involves you having to count Peter Whitehead's privateer Ferrari in the nineteen fifty French Grand Prix, uh, from which Ferrari withdrew because their car wasn't quick enough. I should uh, point out um, the. Bit being counted as a works entry, so uh, yes, it's uh, one fudge after another. You might say this Grand Prix. Perhaps they 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 might go away and think actually we probably shouldn't have been making such a big thing of our thousandth that's our nine hundred ninety ninth Grand Prix as a works entity. Oh God, as you you would have loved it here this weekend. There was, a, I mean, I assume they showed it on the world feed, but there was a, a sort of dancing flag display. Uh, which also seemed to feature some DJ music towards the end. I don't know if they overlapped or there were two separate things, but anyway, I thought it was a uh, pure pageantry. Oh, it was anyway, awesome. It, it, it was only missing Kate Bush and a smoke machine with all that <laughs> interpretive dance. I was loving it. <laughs> of course you were. Of course you were. Um, 
let, just the, 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 one of the most interesting things uh, about at the end of the race, because obviously the the battle for the lead wasn't really wasn't really up to much. Albon, by the time he got past Ricardo, was was pretty was pretty safe in third. Was um, was George Russell trying to charge to get a point because he finished eleventh on the road, but Kimi Räikkönen picked up a five second time penalty because he he cut across uh, the pit lane entry effectively, he ran over the the painted uh, the painted part there ahead of the, ahead of the, ahead of the pit lane. But when Lance Stroll crashed and the safety car was called alpha called him in and he, he jinked in but that was a as a clear breach as we as we've been john we've been reading the uh the race director's note so many times this weekend because of all the all the checking when it came to the safety car restart but that's a clear one they have to stick to the to the right of the white line at all times going along that sort of you know v-shaped um painted uh tri- triangular shaped uh painted part that i can cut over but it just led to this really intriguing um find a few laps as to whether russell could get uh to could get within five seconds of Raikkonen and, and get ahead in the end only Charles Leclerc got promoted because Wackenham was able to to keep up his pace. Incidentally, he says his car was damaged quite heavily uh, in the in the start in the start crash. So um, I have to take him at his word on that. Obviously, Alpha would have been able to to work on it during the during the red flags, but you know they can't fix everything during that time. But yeah, what did you make of George Russell's drive today, John? Because it was it was very good at times, but it was also not very good at, t- at times in terms of a gain. It's a start issue that costs him places and ultimately that costs him points and he spoke to him as well how was he uh, on his zoom media call uh gutted basically uh i think he described it as heartbreaking um that they'd had this race um made a poor start in the in the first um first race if we call today three races um poor start but great first lap so it was uh, moved himself well up there um as things played out it stayed out of trouble in the um that melee chaotic safety car restart um, managed to get away okay on the second start, not great. Um, but as that, as the race panned out, uh, running in ninth, um, fairly comfortable actually. Had Sebastian Vettel behind him, uh, had Charles Leclerc behind him. They weren't closing in on him. Um, had a bit of a strategy advantage. Uh, and there was that second red flag that screwed him really because um, A, it pitted for tyres um, when the red flag came out. Um, and Leclerc got a free pit stop. So move Leclerc up ahead of him. Uh, and then at the start, um, he made a poor getaway. The team don't know why. The data says it was fine. Should have been fine. But for some reason, wasn't very good. Then it was compounded by the fact that in the red flag, Kimi Räikkönen and, and uh, Roman Grosjean had been lapped. So had to get them shuffle themselves back round to the back of the field. So went out and did an extra lap, which warmed their tyres up. Uh, so when they came around to do the, the proper start, they'd had an extra lap to get some heat in their tyres, um, which was perfect for the start. So George was left stuck at the back behind these two cars. He managed to um, get through, get up to 10th, get up to 11th, sorry. But unfortunately, not enough, not enough pace to catch Vettel at that phase of the race. Uh, and really, really, really upset because, I mean, Williams has been through quite an upheaval in the last few weeks with Claire leaving and Frank stepping away. Um I think he just felt that that effort could have been rewarded today with some points. And on a day when a lot of cars crashed out, perfect opportunity. So, you know, he's really pretty upset tonight, actually. Indeed. I think uh, Sebastian Vettel had some quite nice words for him after the race. Um, but yeah, so yeah, interesting, interesting, interesting race for Russell. Let's, let, let, let's leave it at that because we must come on to what is going to be our final topic tonight. And I'm going to throw each of you the same question. We'll start with Luke, then we'll go to Codders and then with John and I shall, of course, have the final judgment from <laughs> the host. Now, this is something that uh, the drivers have been asked about all weekend. Uh, Valtteri Bottas was very clear in the press conference. He wants Mugello on the calendar every year. So... Should Mugello 
be a Formula One track every season, Luke. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I've loved it this weekend, honestly. I think as I, I touched on on the Friday podcast with Jake, like I'd not watched a lot of racing at Mugello in the past. I think my experience, much like Codders, was based mainly on, on Forza Motorsport on the Xbox. But no, it's been it's been amazing. I think it's been really, really cool. It's been a real nice, I think, reminder of what these kind of sort of old school circuits can be like. Um, Sebastian Vettel was asked uh, after the race today about the sort of the, the, the camber corners and how much of a role that plays. And he was like, well, you can tell it's not, a trap made by Herman Tilke because you have got all these camber corners and there's nothing off camber and it's really fun to drive and I, I just think that's really cool um, and I liked it that we had the in the event notes that you mentioned on uh, on Friday I believe there was an update and the track limits and normally every Thursday we always get through the event notes and it's we normally do a story saying what the track limits are going to be for the weekend and it will be some draconian rule about how many times they can go over su- such a part of the curb or whatever. And this this weekend, all it read was the uh, the track limit is defined by the start of the gravel, and that's it. And that is how every track really should be. Um, I think that really gave the drivers a good challenge this weekend. I think it was amazing to see them pushing so much. I don't think they ever went below third gear on on a hot lap or in qualifying. Obviously, they were going flat for a big big portion of the lap. And I just think that's mega. And I think it's a it's a really cool track. Um, I'm very envious of you guys being there because it seems like such a cool place to be. And yeah, I'm absolutely game for this being on the calendar every single year if there's a, a good case that it can be uh, secured long term. Well, just before we come to Codders, for your point of view, um, interesting, another note in the race director's notes, there were several of them issued because there were various updates added. One of them was just to remind the drivers that the safety car was painted red this weekend, which <laughs> was a, a nice little tidbit. One of our perhaps more immature colleagues in the media center found this absolutely hilarious and was guffawing about it, which was just bizarre. Um, Yes, indeed, it was lol. Um, Codders, <laughs> do you think Magello should be on the calendar every year? Can I say a, a cadenced and nuanced yes to that? Because the heartstrings say yes. Practically, you know, it's never going to happen. There's never going to be the government money to make it happen. Um, if if everyone wanted to and needed to get there and all the fans were there, it would be a colossal pain in the ass to get in and out every day. I know it's like that at Monza, so hey-ho. Um I, I just kind of think this 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 has been a, a magnificent and almost well well unique set of circumstances in that we're at this great track here racing Formula One there for the first time and a lot of unusual things that wouldn't otherwise have happened have happened. And if it were to become a fixture on the calendar, the the amount of data each team would have on it the, the way the drivers would approach it would change. And, and I think it would become one of those circuits where everyone says, well, you know, there's no overtaking or there's too much DRS or the undercut's too powerful or blah de blah And they would just ruin the memory of what has been a great first Grand Prix here. So I just quite like to cherish the memory of what's been a great and exciting Grand Prix weekend and kind of put it on the shelf and 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 polish it every now and then and and not let time and cynicism diminish it. Stuart Codling is the voice of reason. That's a very odd situation. Uh John, what do you what do you think? Should Magella come back next year? I'm gonna uh cherry pick the best of Stuart's and Luke's arguments actually and uh I think it's been a great track, great Formula One and we should come back. However, I agree with Codders that, um, A, the reality is there's no money to pay for it. And B, I agree that um, when we come back, it won't have the same magic. The teams will have nailed their setups properly. 
they will have nailed their safety car restarts, they will have nailed their standing starts and the overtaking places and where to block and what to do. So it will, it will lose a lot of the benefits that we've had. But the solution should be that as the calendar expands, the team should agree to hold one race at a proper old school track each year. It can rotate around. So we can have one year at Mugello, we'd have one year at Imola. Let's go to, you know, one year in Turkey. Um, let's well, pick out oh, some old tracks. Let's go, let's go Pescara. Yes. <laughs> yeah, what about what about one year at one year at Brands Hatch? Because that's the closest <laughs> one to my house. Sorry, go on, John. So we just pick out. Just let's have let's have some rotation in the calendar. Because I think one of the one of the poor things about Formula One is it gets too um, it repeats itself too much. It's the same venues year after year after year with the same rhythm, which is has a benefit of you know, understanding the, the vibe of the season. But you do need some new venues chucked in. You do need a bit of variety. It seems to be a, a bit uncertain. So, you know, let's have let's get our 22 races in that are paying top dollar. And then the teams can um, sacrifice a bit of extra cash. And we have one proper old school Grand Prix each year. It's very important to, to separate the, the sentiment you have for a particular race from a, a venue's values and potentials and, and 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 what generally happens there. Now, um, this this time last year, I wrote a column for um, Autosport.com, excoriating Hockenheim for being a complete dump. And yeah, I believe I believe one of the television commentators was very upset with you. Oh dear, he literally bored the ass off me as he does his viewers. Um, <laughs> at the coffee machine in the Williams motorhome telling me that I was an idiot for excoriating uh, Hockenheim because it had been a brilliant race. I said, but name redacted. Um, it was only a brilliant race because of the change in climactic conditions. And I'm afraid that name redacted then came back and said, but you're an idiot because it was a brilliant race. And I said, but um, name redacted, it was only a brilliant race because of the change in climactic conditions from heat wave to alternating heat wave plus torrential rain, this does not diminish my argument that the venue itself is a dump. Uh, what made the race was the cloud formations and the high pressure and low pressure zones around it. And unfortunately, name redacted then, as, as idiots tend to do, I'm afraid, just re endlessly restated his position. So fortunately, he got bored and bogged off and finally i got my cappuccino while the the the, the poor lady in the williams motorhome said to, well he was very aerated about that wasn't he i do hope you didn't have that cappuccino in the afternoon cutters because that would be a very big it, well, it was, in Italy. well it, it was it was initially my request was put in at about nine o'clock but by the time name redacted had finished windbagging it was about nine forty-five. so dear lord we were almost at lunchtime and my stomach was rumbling Fair enough, fair enough. Well, as I said, I'm going to have the, the casting vote on this whimsical suggestion of should Magella come back every year. I think it should uh, for the very key reason in that, uh, John, you and I went to the track on Wednesday ahead of the event. We wanted to get our bearings, did a, uh, a little video for motorsport.com, which went on uh, on, our, on, on motorsport.com Instagram channel and, and also a video as well. As you we were doing that, walking around the car park, um, I spotted a snake, grass snake, slithering through the grass. And I had the perfect, and it, it formed in my mind, the perfect you know biting satire that i was going to post on twitter 
this picture about Formula One and snake pits. And then I made the mistake of going, John, look, a snake. And then it, it shot away and I lost it and it was very upsetting. But it wasn't the only snake I saw that weekend. But uh, it would just be nice, to, it would just be nice to, uh, to, to, to have seen it again. I also was a bit com- concerned I was going slightly mad, but John did, did see it as well. It was there and it was okay. ridiculous how it um, was suddenly there posing for the photograph and then disappeared uh, within the blink of an eye. And I did have to check my feet to make sure it wasn't wrapping itself around my shoes, but it had gone luckily. We managed to shake off the snake. We're going to have to leave it there. It's, it's very late here um, in, uh, where are we? Wherever we are in, in, in Magello. Uh, so thank you very much uh, for the three of you to come on the podcast tonight and thanks to everybody listening along. Now, just before we go, we'd like to remind you that the latest issue of Autosport magazine came out on Thursday and is available on the supermarket shelves and in newsagents, as well as on the doormats of subscribers. There'll be a new issue of the magazine for you to pick up every Thursday, packed full of news, analysis, and the usual stunning photography. And of course, if you want unlimited access to Autosport from the comfort of your home, visit autosport.com slash plus to find out how to subscribe to our digital package. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com slash Trilo Music. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Social Podcast Network. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.